Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Lake of the Ozarks message podcast. Our prayer and desire as you listen to today's message is that it would be an encouragement and challenge in your walk and relationship with Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at cclo.org or download our app in your app store today. Now, let's jump into today's message together. We get to continue through um, our study uh, through the book of Revelation, or what we're calling the letter from Patmos, right? John, the apostle, was exiled to the island of Patmos, and on that island, he has this vision, and, and Jesus is, is there telling him to write things down, right? For the last few weeks, Pastor Nick has been walking through pretty much the introduction of the book of Revelation, the, the introduction of, hey, how we're going to approach this as a church. Hey, here's this and this. And Jesus is telling us that these things are going to happen. And, and it's just all a lot of information, right? That's our introduction. But today we actually get into chapter two, which is going to bring us into a new section of Revelation. And this is going to start the letters to the churches. This is going to be the very first one. So it's important for us to just lay out the guidelines before we get there, right? That, that though it's in the book of Revelation and it's to the church in Ephesus, um, that's what it is, right? Like, it, this isn't something that's, oh, Ephesus means something else. No, John is hearing from Jesus and writing a letter to the church in Ephesus. This is a church at the time with real people, real congregation, and he's writing about a real issue that Jesus sees in them. Now, now does that mean oh, well, we're a New Testament, we don't read it, blah, blah, blah. No, like we, we absolutely do because the lesson here for the church in Ephesus actually helps us as well today. Just, just like this. I, I think this is an easy way to do it. If you turn, you know, just left from where you're at in Revelation and you start seeing all these other letters like to Timothy and the Philippians and Galatians and Colossians, the same way you would read those letters, same exact way we read this letter, even though it's in the book of Revelation. Right? Like it is specific to Ephesus at this time, but it is beneficial to the church even today. We good? Let's jump into it and we're going to start reading. Verse 1, chapter 2, it says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who hold the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I'm going to stop. Last week, Pastor Nick did an awesome job talking about how Jesus is with us in affliction, right? That you see this, this illustration of Jesus holding these stars and walking amongst the lampstand. So pretty much we can just say that a lesson to be had here is that in our eh of life, whatever it might be, mountaintops, valleys, Jesus is holding us, he's preserving us, he's protecting us, and he's always walking with us. That's just a fantastic thing. That's a personal thing. I'm, I'm glad that that's the introduction for this letter, but let's keep going. Verse two, it says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently, bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but... I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is a deep passage. This is this has been one for the last week and a half-ish that has just been beating me up. <laughs> um, and I told first service after I said that, I said, and now it's your turn. Um, but but in all reality, this this is a, a very deep message that Jesus has to his church. Um, like I said, what, if you turn left and start seeing these other letters, you see guys that were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these letters to the churches, right? So if you're sitting, and I mean, here we are talking about Ephesus. Ephesus is the only church out of the seven in Revelation that are mentioned in the book of Acts, and it's the only one that has its other letter. There's another letter written to the same body, right? Um, so it's kind of fun to, to think of the, the Ephesians as they're sitting in their congregation in the 60, 60 AD-ish, whenever Paul wrote the first letter, and, and they're like, all right, we have a church meeting. Paul wrote something. Now, if I'm in there, I think my knees are going to be shaken just a little bit. It's like, Paul's probably not happy. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. But here in Revelation, you see John writing these things down, but it's coming out of the mouth of Jesus. So, so this, the second meeting, right, in 95 AD, whenever you want to say this is written, um, the Ephesians get together, and they're like, okay, we have another letter. This is from John, but Jesus told him to write it. <clears throat> I think my whole body be shaking a little bit. This, this is a little deeper. This is a little more because Jesus out like just sees the heart, right? Like he can see through all the extra stuff and he sees the heart. So here we have <clears throat> this letter to Ephesians, to the Ephesians. Um, each letter in the book of Revelation uh, that's found in this book have kind of the same content or, or the flow of, of the letter with the exception of a couple, right? There's some, there's some really good churches that don't have one of these sayings, and then there's a really bad church that doesn't have another thing. But for the majority of them, uh, they kind of have the same flow. And, and this is the flow that we're going to kind of talk about today. They would be, uh, the letter starts with praise, right? Well, outside of the introduction, the letter starts with praise, that Jesus is going to share something uh, positive about them, positive about them, about something they're doing, whatever, but it's praise. Jesus is going to praise the people. The next thing that we're going to see in this letter, though, is criticism. That there's a negative aspect to something they're either doing or not doing. So you have praise, you have criticism, and then next you're going to see a solution. So a way to fix the problem that they're suffering from. And finally, we're going to see the consequences, good and bad. And I think it's going to do us well today to to look at those pieces um, specifically as we just walk through this letter. Now, you might be asking yourself, well, does it matter? Does this letter matter to us today? And I just want to repeat myself. Um, yes, they do. Because, yes, it was specific to the church in Ephesus at this time. <clears throat> but in verse 7, go to verse 7 with me. It says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the, does it say church in Ephesus? says, let him hear what he says. The Spirit says to the churches. I think that's the that's our key point to hold to with all these letters. They all end that way. Let 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 he who hears hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That is something beneficial for us. So we absolutely need to jump into it. 
These are not unlike any of the other letters throughout the Bible. They're written to those churches, and they're beneficial for us today. So, if you guys are note-takers, I'm just going to repeat them one more time. Praise, criticism, solution, and consequence. So let's jump into it. Verse 2. It says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. This is the praise section of the letter to the church in Ephesus. Now, as you go through this, there's five things that I think we see here. Five things that this church is doing really well. The first being that they're known for their works. Known for their works. That the church isn't just some bystander in culture, bystander, uh, in, in culture or whatever it might be, and, and they're just like, well, our bags are packed and we're ready to go to eternity, and that's where we're at. No. This church is known to be doing the works that Christ has called them to do. That, that they're going out and, and they're serving the poor. That they're helping out the widows and the orphans. They're weeping with those who weep, rejoicing with those who rejoice, sharing the gospel. All these things that the church should be known for, this church is doing. And that's something kind of cool because like here we have Jesus saying, I know your works. Jesus is looking through all the extra stuff and says, I know your works. I know you're willing to do what I've called you to do. The next thing that we see is that they're known for their labor, or in my translation, as I read it, says your toil. They're known for their labor. So not only is this church in Ephesus willing to do the works of Christ with their own hands, they're willing to roll up their sleeves when they do it. That it's not just, yeah, I'll just be there, or yeah, I'll just show up, but they're going to give everything that they have. This word toil actually means uh, to the point of exhaustion and or pain. Like, do you, <laughs> they were willing to give sacrificially everything that they have to do the works that Christ has called them to do. I wish I could be known for that. As I was going through, I didn't know if I was going to share this or not, but might as well. It's been a it's been a hard week for me, so I'll make it a hard week for you. There's a quote from a commentator in the 1800s, and it goes something like this. He says the the average work of a Christian today concerning this this word toil would not exhaust a butterfly. That won't hurt. But here we have the church in Ephesus that's willing to do the work, and they're willing to do the work with everything that they have in them. We see the third thing is uh, found in verse 2, that they're patiently enduring trials. Patiently enduring trials. Now, again, sometimes I think whenever we read, uh, you know, churches of, of old, right, around 2,000 years ago, uh, we say, I don't think they understand what trials really are, right? Like, they're not in 2023. They don't know the government we're in. They don't know the social issues that we're in. We, they don't know all these medical things and blah, blah, blah. And, and we can go on and on and on and say they don't get it. So when we read that they're patiently enduring trials, we're like, yeah, of course you are. That's easy. That's easy peasy. I could do that in my sleep. I think it's important for us to kind of jump in, right? Um, 
One, like I said, Ephesus is the only church that's mentioned in the book of Acts, meaning uh, when Paul went on his second missionary trip, I believe, he kind of stopped by. Aquila and Priscilla were there, and the gospel kind of started, right? And the church kind of started picking up some steam. Paul then came back on his third and stayed for three years, and he was a shepherd to the people. Ephesus um, was kind of that starting ground. It kind of just started going all over in Asia Minor that we've kind of read about. And because of its location, uh, which is modern-day Turkey, so we say Asia Minor, and I'm sure as we're looking at the map, we're like, okay, Jerusalem's here, Asia Minor. Wait, actually, it's Turkey, so it's like Northwest. So it's just right up there. Um, <clears throat> it's Asia compared to Rome, not, not what we know as it. Um, but because of their location, uh, it was also a commercial political and religious center. Um, everyone basically, if you're traveling Jerusalem uh, north to get to Rome, you have to go through Ephesus. Like that's kind of the region. I mean, you could probably go around it, but it's Ephesus, so might as well go through it. Um, and because of that, uh, they also had the largest medical school at the time. They, had, they were technologically advanced, and they were considered one of the safest spots in the Roman Empire for way of life and wealth. You guys are like, Sean, you're not selling me on their going through difficult times. This sounds like they're easy peasy sailing. But if we look at it a little bit more, um, with the commercial, political, and religious center, we, we also know that the temple of Artemis was there. Uh, the Bible would say Diana of the Ephesians. It's this goddess of fertility. It was one of the seven wonders of the world when it was built and it was still going, and it's not just rubble. Uh, I think it had like 200 pillars, like 400 feet wide and 200 feet deep. It was this massive temple to the goddess Diana. Now, you guys are like, okay, so this seemed bad, like some tourist money's coming in, stuff like that. Goddess of Diana was the goddess of fertility. Now, if people will go to Ephesus to worship the goddess of fertility, what do you think is happening in their culture? One thing of worship of Diana would be temple prostitution, temple prostitution and sexual immorality was rampant through Ephesus. And here they are, known for their works and their endurance and their, and their labor. They're fighting the culture every single day, whether they like it or not. So yeah, they absolutely were patiently enduring trials. And then just throw normal everyday life stuff, right? You guys have walked through valleys of the shadow of darkness, right? The shadow of death. I've walked through it. They're, they're on top of that, they're living in one of the most perverse societies up until that point. They were patiently enduring trials. The next thing that they were known for is you keep going. <clears throat> it says... Uh, Verse 2, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. So not only are they known for their works, their labor, and patiently enduring trials, they're also known for their holiness. They're known for their holiness, right? This, this society that's going rampant, sexual immorality is all over the place. They're known for not associating with people that are evil. They're abhorring what is evil and clinging to what is good. Man, I... I <laughs> I wish we could blanket statement say that for the church today. That things that are evil are gone and done 
and not even talked, not even looked at, not nothing. It's just gone and we're clinging to holiness. These people didn't even want to be around people that were evil. They were known for their holiness. And then finally, we see as you keep going uh, <clears throat> in verse 2, it says, And have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. So before we got into Revelation, we were in First, Second, and Third John. You guys remember that? So in there, one of the main things that was happening to the church at that time is that there are false teachers going out and telling people that Jesus hasn't shown up, Jesus didn't come in the flesh, and basically taking Christian essential doctrines and saying they didn't happen, and teaching this false religion, basically. And throughout the whole, all three of those letters, John said, test them. Test them. Don't, don't just, if somebody says, I'm an apostle, I'm a pastor, I'm a preacher, and they start talking, test them. Uh, we, we know that in Acts there is this group the Bereans, and after Paul, who's like God's theologian, he says things that confuses Peter, like this dude knew what he was talking about. He's preaching to these Bereans, and it says that they went home, read in the scripture to make sure Paul was right. <laughs> That's what the church in Ephesus was doing as well. They, they, were, they were letting people come in, and, and then they would base it off of everything that they knew about Jesus. And if it didn't line up, got the boot. Again, I wish this was something that the church was known for. But far too often the church gets kind of caught in this trap of somebody's platform, the size of their platform, the title, the way they can just present a message. And we've 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 traded truth for whatever this is. <laughs> and we haven't tested we haven't figured out false teachers. We, we don't really want to sometimes. And we just take people at face value and we never jump in to see what it is. But I think what's important for us to know as I'm beating myself up um, is that all of these things were great. All of these things were good. That if somebody came into the church and said, hey, I think your church is known for their labor, for their works, for enduring trials, for their holiness, and for their discernment, we'd go, <laughs> we'd start patting each other on the back, right? I'd walk down there and start patting all of you guys on the back. That's what we would do. We'd be very excited. We'd be very thankful that that's what we are known for. And especially, this is a letter from Jesus. You think that they're sitting in Ephesus, and so they're like, we did it. <laughs> we did it. Well, let's keep going, because that was the praise part. We're going to enter into the criticism, and it's found in verse 4. It says, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. They had five really good things going for them. And in the criticism, we see one thing that's against it. But this word, but I have this against you, gives us this, this thought that the one thing they're lacking is actually worse than the five good things that they had. Let me tell you guys a story. Um, whenever I first got here, uh, I, you, you might know Russ. I don't know, he is last service. Russ um, asked me two questions whenever I got to this church. He asked me where I stood uh, theologically, 
if I was conservative and he asked some key points from there. I guess so he asked more than two. And then the second question was, do you play softball? That's what I got. <laughs> and I, so I told him where I stood theologically. I was pumped about that. And then I said, I've played church softball before. Like I was on my other church's softball team. He's like, okay. So I showed up and within a week I'm playing on Calvary's church softball team. Now, if you guys have never watched Calvary's church softball team, this is not like any other league that I've ever been a part of whenever it comes to church. Uh, it's super competitive, um, and I think that's just because of who we all are. Uh, but I remember I get to the first game, and, and I'm getting up to bat, and Russ said, all right, let's see what you got. Guys, I'm telling you right now, that was the one time in my life I've been nervous at a slow-pitch church league softball game. So I get up in the batter's box, standing there. They throw it. I'm like, okay, I remember this. I swing with everything I have, right? I'm like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this one count. Swung and missed. <laughs> and I looked over at Russ, and he literally went. He dropped his head. And I was like, I don't know what to do. I don't know. So I pitch it again. I have not struck out yet, and I got one strike left. I pitch it again, and I got a hold of it, and I put it over left field, and I got a home run. And I get back to the dugout, and Russ said, just keep doing that. And I was like, that's a lot of pressure. But the same game, uh, same game, I played second. I think uh, your brother and I actually turned a double. Like, we turned a double. I'm getting people out. Got on base like three, four other times. I'm playing first base. We're winning. I didn't tell all this because I didn't want to drive it too far into Russ. Uh, I didn't want to convict him too much. But we're winning by 20-plus runs at this game. We're destroying the other team, which happens to be the youth from our church. Yeah. Yeah, like, come on. So I'm playing first base. Your brother is a phenomenal shortstop, snags it, throws it 100 miles an hour. This kid is three steps onto the baseline. I'm like, well, he's out. So I let it hit my glove. I let it drop. I let the kid on the bag, right? Russ benched me the next inning. I kid you not. The, the one bad thing, bad thing I did outweighed all of the good that I already done. And that's exactly where this church was. They had five really great things going for them, but they had one really bad thing going against them. The good did not outweigh the bad in the eyes of Jesus. That the one thing missing is worse than all the good things put together and even multiplied by 10. This church, they said the right things. They stopped the right people who were saying the wrong things. They loved on the right people, and they were there when people needed them. But they left their first love. I think it's important that my—well, my, my translation says abandoned, but it left also works. I think it's important that we understand that it says abandoned or left and not lost. Because there, there's a big difference between those two words. Because if, if you left something— this, one, this one's the one that hurts. It means that you made a conscious decision to do so. Meaning that the church in Ephesus decided to become a really busy church instead of a really devoted church. So as we keep going, I think there's two more questions that we can kind of ask ourselves because this verse is really important for us, the application today. So we're going to spend a little bit more time on it. Uh, the first question, 
I have questions. That's how I process stuff. So you guys are just watching me process it. First question is, what, what is our first love? What is this thing that the church in Ephesus left? Um, if you start studying, you start reading, and, and all these different things, there's like two thoughts, right? There's one thought that says that our first love, meaning our priority, meaning that God is first. Everything else is second, third, fourth, fifth. I get that. I understand that, right? That, that he's top. I, I always say God, family, ministry. That, that's, my, that's my goal in life. But sometimes they get mixed. So it, you could, be, you could left, leave your first love as in priority, or it could mean that you left your first love, meaning the passion that you have, the fervor that you have, the devotion that you have for being in the Word, loving Jesus, loving people, like the, the passion that's behind it. Um, just so you guys know, I kind of fall into this third camp, believing that it's both of those put together. Uh, Jeremiah 2, 2 is God speaking to Israel. Now, it, yes, exact, he's specifically speaking to Israel, but it's a lesson that we can apply to our lives as well. He says, I remember your devotion as a child and your passion as a wife. So I believe that it's both, that your priorities are in check, that it's God first, everything else second. And you have that passion that you had, right? That honeymoon phase that everyone talks about in weddings. Now, does it have to look like the honeymoon phase? No, but the honeymoon phase should lead you to a deeper love later on. The same action things, they're not going to be exactly the same, but the love should still be there, that the passion should still be there. And the next question I had is, okay, if it's a conscious decision to leave something, how in the world do we know if we've left it? How do we know that if, if we've fallen into verse 4, that we've abandoned our first love? And I heard this from a pastor friend of mine, and that's been wrecking my life this whole week. Um, and he would say this. He said, you would know that you left your first love when... Your why is broken. When your why is broken. That, that is when your answer to why you do ministry is anything other than the love of Christ or your love for his people. It's broken. So why do you serve in Cal Kids? Told me they, they needed a spot. Your why is broken. Why are you in life group? That day worked for us. Your why is broken. Why do you do the ministry that you do? Well, the, the community needs it. Your why is broken. Paul would say that his motivation was the love of Christ compels him to do it. He would even go as far to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1, 2, and 3, he would say that if I speak in the voice of man or the voice of angels and I have not love, I will be a clanging gong and a noisy cymbal. Verse 2, he says that if he has faith enough to move a mountain and it moves and he does not have love, he is nothing. And verse 3 says that if he were to be burned at the stake without love, paraphrasing, he would have wasted his time. Meaning that if somebody came up to Paul or you or me and said, 
deny Jesus right now. We're burning you at the stake. And we're like, let's go to the stake. Let's do it. Light that fire, baby. Let's go. And we're sitting there and we don't have that first love. We're burning for nothing. We've wasted our time. Church, love is essential to Christianity. Love is essential to Christianity because that is who God is. It's not that God loves, it's God is love. He is the source of it all. And if we're going to be all about him, love has to be essential for us in doing what he's called us to do. Listen, the road to destruction is paved with people that have perfect theology and zero love. guys are like pumped i'm here today this is a really cool letter sean thanks um and you know what it would be one of those messages where it's just like i just got all my teeth knocked in see you next week but but the letter does not stop there we have praise we just talked about criticism and now we're walking into this part of solution a solution. Verse 5, it says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. So it's three parts here. And I'm from Missouri, so it's the three R's, right? Reading, writing, arithmetic. No, I'm kidding. But there are three R's. Three R's. So the first one starts like this. Verse 5, it says, Remember. Remember. Step one of our solution is to remember. And it says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Hannah and I have been married six years now. Uh, we got four kids. Like, it's, it's awesome. Uh, but this week, I, was, I started seeing this word remember, and uh, I started to remember it whenever we, we first started dating. You guys ever do that every once in a while? Guys, all of you guys shake your head, look at your wife, and be like, I, yes, all the time. <laughs> But I started remembering, and there was one thing that just kept coming up as I was trying to remember what it was. I was trying to, like, be super sweet. You know, like, Sean was a really good boyfriend and all this stuff, but really it's an irritation I had, and so let's just talk about it. Hannah lived 45 minutes away, uh, so she, whenever she'd drive home or i drive home, Hannah loves being on the phone. I despise being on the phone if... If there's no purpose to be on the phone, like if you need to act, call me and ask for something, I give you an answer and it's good. Like we're done. I'm hanging up. Hannah uh, w- would not do that. Like she'll just she'll kind of keep going and she'll try to find a point. And so she lived 45 minutes away. We'd be done talking seven minutes in. Right. And for 38 minutes, she's just like, I, I just love you. And it's like, Love you too. For 38 minutes, that's what I would do. <laughs> Sorry. And then she'd get home, and I'm like, oh, yes. here we go. Love you, bye. You know, that, those, those three words coming out. Nope. She'd, she'd get out of her car, walk through her house, be like, hi, Mom. Hi. I'm hearing her, like, talk to everyone. And I'm like, I don't even know why I'm on the phone right now. Um, but I did it for her. I did it for her. Now, is she, I don't think she's in here. She's probably upstairs. Yeah. Whoa. Whoa. At least she's upstairs. That's fine. And 
if you can see this and people are here online and not see what I'm about to do, I'm going to verbally say what I'm going to do because this is important. And don't, don't lie, people. You're all in trouble if you lie. But when I started dating Hannah and, and I was talking to myself on the phone for 38 minutes, I was willing to waste, air quotes for everyone listening to the podcast, waste my time on Hannah. Told you guys we've been here two years. Uh, whenever we first got here, probably the first month and a half, two months that we lived here, I probably almost got into like 50 single car accidents. Just myself. Like no one else hit me or anything. And it was because of this. Every time that I would drive by the lake, I looked at the lake. Like even even on my even on my drive into work, like I knew where the trees broke, and I'm just like, like and trying to stay on the road, right? And as I, as I was trying to just remember some stuff, I can't tell you the last time that I looked at the lake. It's been two years. Sub, sub two years. I don't even look at that thing anymore. I looked at the lake all the time because we had the Missouri River. Have you guys ever seen this thing? It's a big old mud puddle that's really wide. I mean, that's it. The lake is beautiful and it's awe and it's, all, all, it's amazing. When I haven't looked at it. I couldn't even tell you when. Guys, when I tell you that I would go out of my way just to drive by the lake instead, like, I was almost late a lot, too, because I'm like, if I go this way, I could see the lake. Remember, when you are willing to, air quote, waste your time with Jesus. That you are willing to put him first and nothing else above him. when you're willing to waste your time with Jesus, no matter what other time commitments you had. Or, and, remember when, whenever you're willing to go out of your way to serve Jesus, you're going out of your way to get closer to Jesus, that no priorities in your life were in the way, and that was the only thing that you had. Remember, Andy saying Ebenezer, I don't even know, he probably didn't even know this is one of my points, but the last two services, he's singing this Ebenezer song, and that's what it is. It's a, it's a stone of remembrance. Guys, this, this thought of remembering what God has done for you or how your walk with Jesus was at the beginning is not a New Testament-only thing. This is an Old Testament thing. God has always told his people to remember. So remember where you were. Remember those Bible studies that you never wanted to leave. Remember your prayer life when it wasn't just a list of what we wanted. <laughs> Remember sharing Jesus with others and watching that transformation just start happening in their life. Remember when you liked to get together with other Christians and it wasn't like, get out the door, we're going to be late. <laughs> I've been there. <laughs> I do it all the time. Remember. And I think it's important also to know that remembering where we were, remember from where you have fallen, isn't supposed to lead us into guilt and shame. Because guilt and shame bring about no activity. You're paralyzed. Guilt and shame will shut you down faster than anything. It's supposed to lead us to like a, a godly sorrow, right? The Bible tells us that godly sorrow is what then is going to bring us into the next part of the solution, which is the word repent. 
that godly sorrow leads to repentance. Now, <clears throat> you guys might be like, repent is a pretty harsh word, Sean. <laughs> right? Repent is used for murderers and adulterers and lust and drunkenness. You know, that that's we use that R word for like the real serious stuff. Don't be throwing that around. Repent? Really? Yeah. Church, because one of the most evil things that we could do is to stop loving our God and to stop loving his people. This, like all sin that is in our life that we come across all the time, just like all sin absolutely calls for repentance. Remember where you're from that produces a godly sorrow. You're like, I desire that so much. Godly sorrow then leads to repentance. Now, you guys have probably heard that repentance is, you know, change in direction, right? You're going this way, and now you're going this way. And that's true to a point. I think it's a little deeper, though, right? Repentance here especially is that it's a change of mind. It's a change of mind that then leads to a change of heart that then leads to a change of life. And now you're going the way that, that we, we're back to that first love. So it's change of mind, change of heart that leads to a change in life. And then finally, lastly, for the solution, Jesus tells us to return. Jesus tells us to return. It says to do the works you have first, but I like alliteration, so return. He tells us to go back to doing the things that we did at first. He says, go back and do those things again. How, how great, how great is his grace that he doesn't just boot us out right after repentance? <laughs> yeah, you remembered where you were, you repented, you have a change of life. See ya. See you in eternity later. <laughs> no. Jesus still calls us in when we Respond to him appropriately. So remember, repent. Jesus still calls us to a deep, passionate walk with him. So what's that mean? What's return to do the good works? Join those Bible studies again. Pray like you used to. Share Jesus with others and be in the fellowship with other Christians. Those are just four. There's a hundred other things that you guys could do that you were doing at first because you're willing to, air quote, waste your time with Jesus and go out of your way to serve him. I think um, it's different for everyone, right? What, what, what your first was, it's, it's different. So I think it's this. Ultimately, just get back to the basics. Get back to the basics and stop chasing this next new discipleship thing, right? The basics. If we're in them, we're in them appropriately, we respond to him appropriately, Jesus is first, we have the passion, we have the devotion, we have the the fervor that we have, the basics will continually show you the love that you have for him based on the love that he has for you, right? We love because he first loved us. So if we're consistently doing the basics, we're jumping into the Word. We, we're getting to know Jesus a little bit more. We're, we're, we're fellowshipping with other Christians. We're sharing the truth of Jesus to the people around us, watching people's lives be changed. 
like we have a prayer life that's on fire, we start doing those things, we won't make that conscious decision of leaving our first love because we're going to be constantly reminded that he who knew no sin became sin so that we can become the righteousness of God. Our actions doing those things that we did at first constantly, constantly show us that we have the creator of the universe that loves us so much that he sent a son. Let that be our motivation. Let the love of Christ compel you to be your motivation instead of obligation. Obligation is a terrible motivator, right? Like if somebody came up to you and said, you cannot go to Aldi on a Friday afternoon when everyone's off. You're going to go, you know what? I'm going to Aldi on a Friday afternoon. No one wants to go to Aldi on a Friday afternoon. But until somebody tells you you can't or to do it, obligation's a horrible motivator. Let the love of Jesus be your motivator to get back into the things you did at first. Last part of our letter, verse 5, at the end of it, it says, If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Here's the consequences. Jesus gave them the solution to remember, repent, and return back to the first love that you had. The priorities there, the passions there, he's telling you that's how we get back. Now, if they choose not to do this, Jesus is saying, I will remove your lampstand. Or in other words, I'm taking your usefulness away from you. The church should be the light of the world, and it's up on a lampstand. And as soon as you take that light down and it's covered by something else, the usefulness is gone. Just a quick history lesson for you guys. Ephesus did really well for hundreds of years after. A lot of early church fathers and historians said, They're known for their love. Like love started being the saying again. The first letter to Ephesians, love was what it was. Now we're 30 years later and it's not. And then after this letter, it started becoming it again. They loved, they did this. They stopped though. Ephesus, if you go there today, is no longer on the shore, but it's six miles in because of silt and all this stuff. And it's rubble. That's just a history lesson. I don't know what that means for us. But if the solution was followed, Jesus continues in verse 7 when he says, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So if the, if the solution was followed, remember, repent, return, and we do that, motivation's back, the love is back, Jesus tells us that he will grant to eat of the tree of life. What in the world is that? The last time we've read about the tree of life is Genesis chapter 3. That after Adam and Eve were deceived by the serpent, um, it says that, that we got to get them out of here. Lest they eat of the tree of life and live forever. So people see the booting out of Adam and Eve of the garden and this like judgmental whatever you want. I see it as grace. I see it as mercy. Because if they were to eat of that tree of eternal life, they then would then live in a state of shame and sin for all of their life. So God kicks them out. He, he puts them out, puts angels and a flaming sword, and nobody's going back in there. But here we have Jesus telling us that the one who conquers. Now, 
let's not be like super, you know, it's not some spiritual elite. First John 5, 5 says, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? That's it. That's the one who conquers. The one who believes that Jesus is the son of God. Believes in their heart. Confesses with their mouth. It's telling you that if that is you, if you haven't abandoned your first love and, and you believe that Jesus is the son of God, it's saying that you get to eat of that tree that humanity was actually banned from at one point. But Jesus came, became sin, that we might become the righteousness. We get our lives changed, transformed. We're a different new creation, and we get to eat of this eternal life. Here, now, and forever and ever with him.